How many people have a sinner? Mm, what page is the beer cup on my 95? 185. Where's my glasses? Where is our my glasses? Yeah, my glasses are here. On page 187, 187. And I'm going to ask, you got 187? Move smarter, move smarter. Let's go, let's go, let's go. I'm going to ask Joshua Martin to read the second blessing. On 187. We thank you, Adonai, our God, because you have given to our forefathers as a heritage, a desirable, good, and spacious land, because you took us, Adonai, our God, from the land of Israel, and you redeemed us from the house of bondage. For your covenant, which you sealed in our flesh, for your Torah, which you taught us, and for your statutes, which you have made unto us, for life, grace, and loving kindness, which you granted us, and for the provision of food with which you nourish, and sustain us constantly, in every day, in every season, and in every hour. For all Adonai, our God, we thank you and bless you. May your name be blessed by the mouth of all the living, continuously for all eternity. As it is written, and you shall eat, and you shall be satisfied, and you shall bless Adonai, your God, for the now he is given you. Bless you, Adonai, for the land and for the nourishment. Amen. Let's see. Mr. Spurlock, the third blessing. Have mercy, Adonai, our God, on Israel, your people, on Jerusalem, your city. On Zion, the resting place of your glory, on the monarchy of the house of David, your anointed, and on the great and holy house upon which your name is called. Our gods, our Father, tend us, nourish us, sustain us, support us, relieve us. Adonai, our God, grant us speedy relief from all our troubles. Please make us not needful, Adonai, our God, of the gifts of human hands, nor of their loans, but only of your hand that is full, open, holy, and generous, that we may not feel inner shame, nor be humiliated. Forever and ever. We'll do the gray box, everyone. Rick. Our God and our uh, our God and God of our forefathers may their rise, come, reach, be known, be favored, be here, be Where'd you go? You said gray box. Yeah, there's one before that. On the Sabbath ad. Do you have that gray box? Okay. Yeah, two boxes. May it be you, Adonai, our God, give us rest through your commandments and through the commandment of the seventh day, this great and holy Sabbath. For this day is great and holy before you to rest on it and to be content on it in love. As ordained by your will, may it be your will, Adonai, our God, that there be no distress, grief, or lament on this day of our contending. And show us, Adonai, our God, the consolation of Zion, your city, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, city of your holiness. For you are the master of salvations and master of consolations. And the final line, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the, holy Jerusalem city? the holy city. Upon, uh, in our days, blessed are you, Adonai, who rebuilds Jerusalem in his mercy. Amen. Amen. 
And the fourth blessing, are you on it? You got it? Where are we? 191. 191. Okay. Fourth blessing, God's goodness. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, the Almighty, our Father, our King, our Sovereign, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Maker, our Holy One, Holy One of Yaakov, our Shepherd, the Shepherd of Yisrael, the King who is good, who does good for all. For every single day, He did good. He does good, and He will do good to us. He was bountiful with us. He is bountiful with us, and He will forever be bountiful with us, with grace and with kindness and with mercy, with relief, salvation, success, blessing, help, consolation, sustenance, support. Mercy, life, peace, and all good, and of all good things, may He never deprive us. Amen. Amen. All right, back to you. The compassionate one, may He reign over us forever. Amen. The compassionate one, may He be blessed in heaven and on earth. Amen. The compassionate one, may He be praised throughout all generations. May He be glorified through, through us forever to the ultimate ends and be honored through us forever and for all eternity. Amen. The compassionate one, may He sustain us in honor. Amen. The compassionate one, may He break the yoke of oppression from our necks and guide us erect to our land. Amen. The compassionate one, may He send us abundant blessing to this house and upon this table at which we have eaten, the compassionate Amen. one, may he send us Eliyah, the prophet. He is remembered for good, to announce to us good news, salvations, and consolations. Well, you guys can do the gray box together, everyone. May it be will God's will. May he be successful in all his dealings. May his dealings be successful in communicating close at hand. May no evil in heaven or in his work. May no semblance of sin or iniquitous thought attach itself to him in this time. From your mouth to God's ears. Now on the right hand side, everyone, the compassionate one who blessed the master of this house. Ours and all that is ours, just as our forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were blessed in everything, from everything, with everything. So may he bless us all together with a perfect blessing, and let us say, Amen. On high, may merit be pleaded upon them and upon us for a safeguard of peace. May we receive a blessing from Adonai and just kindness from the God of our salvation, and find favor and good understanding in the eyes of God and man. Back to you, Nehemiah, in the gray box. The, the, com the compassionate one may cause us to inherit the day which will be completely aside and rest day for eternal life. Amen. At the bottom. Fear. Oh, no, no, okay. The compassionate. the compassionate one may he make us worthy of the days of Messiah and the life of the world to come. Amen. He, was, he, he who is a tower of salvation to his king and does kindness for his anointed to David and to his descendants forever. He who makes peace in his heights. May he make peace upon us and upon all Yisrael. Now respond. Amen. Fear Adonai, Fear. his holy ones, for there is no deprivation for his reverent ones. Young lions may want and hunger, but those who seek Adonai will not lack any good. Give thanks to Adonai for his good, his kindness endures forever. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Blessed is the man who trusts in Adonai, then Adonai will be his security. I was a youth and also have aged, and I have not seen a righteous man forsaken with his children begging for bread. Matt and I will give might to his people. Matt and I will bless his people with peace. Amen. Amen. Okay, a couple of comments before uh, my righteous son-in-law comes up here. Um, the uh, Uppams, uh, Jonathan, 
drove Gabby and the kids down to Texas to see family. And uh, while that was going on, Greg was going hither to and fro across the country, uh, back and forth into cities and towns I've never even heard of. Mm -hmm. And uh, his end result will be, and I think is in our midst now, to arrive in Texas to meet up with Gabby, and then after Sabbath to drive her back home at some point. Next week. Next, Next week. week. So there we go. So that's their. He's, he's there for a week, right? Yeah, that's their gig. He's in Colorado now. He's but, in Colorado. He's coming back. But the number is not, com you know, not that, that important because we don't meet again for another month. Mm -hmm. But that's why they're not here. Uh, Brock and Jenny. Uh, Shane is uh, has got his deployment papers, and he is in Virginia Beach this weekend on his way to go overseas as a Marine to defend our country. Um, so Brock wanted to be with him before he goes into harm's way. Uh, I understand words like Fallujah, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and stuff like this were coming up. So I don't know where he's going. I don't know what he's doing. Maybe no, nobody does. We may never know. <laughs> and we can't talk about it with the camera on. That's right. There it is. So so yeah. wherever he goes, he'll be That's it. So Brock and uh, Jenny are up there. Um, so that's that's where they are. Um, Rebecca is now out of the room. But uh, I do want you to remember that Christine is with child uh, and due on the morrow. Um, my daughter-in-law, Laura, is due in October. And Rebecca is due in mid-January. So if you thought you were done praying for children in the womb, just get back on your knees and get going. Um, so we are, uh, we are grateful for God's provision there. Uh, 17th of Tammuz will be a Sunday. It is a week from tomorrow, I think, right? It will be a Saturday, but we're going to kick the fast the next day. Right. So who is, who is planning on fasting for that? Easy fast, you're going to do that? Yeah? Okay. Um, easy fast, sunrise sunset. You don't think you can make it through? Get up early, have a nice big breakfast. Right? Mm -hmm. So, uh... It is. it is in the book of Zechariah. It is in the book of Zechariah. It's the fast of the 4th, the fast of the 5th, the fast of the 7th, and the fast of the 10th. Alright? So for those of you who are, are not up on this, the fast of the 4th, the 5th, the 7th, and the 10th are the, are the months of the year. This is the 4th month of the year. Yeah. So we start with Nissan, right? And, uh... You know, it's, it's supposed to turn into days of uh, joy and feasting rather than fasting and gloom and so forth. So um, you can't do that unless it is actually a day of fasting for you. Um, I, I think we talked about, yeah, I think as we talked about last month or last two weeks ago or something, uh, this is a major focus on the destruction of the temple, siege of Jerusalem and so forth. And uh, I think as Joshua said, uh, last time we were together, the 17th of Tammuz begins the bookend to the Fast of the 5th, which is the 9th of Av, next month. And uh, those first nine days are uh, not very happy times you know, in, in Judaism's history. The time of mourning. Yeah, so that's the deal there. So questions on that, let me know. As Joshua comes up, we're going to go through Chukat. And uh, I just want to make it clear that for some of us, we've been in this room doing this particular portion at least three or four, maybe even five times over the past who knows how many years. Um, and it may be getting old for you. But 
my thought here is we got young kids here that maybe didn't get it the first couple times through. Um, we've got old people like me who forget two, three days later. Um, so it's really a good time for us to review. So if you don't know why it was such a big deal that Moses hit that rock, we're going to talk about that. All right? And if you don't, if you don't get why Miriam is known as the sustainer of Israel through the water that she brought, we're going to talk about that and, and just make sure that you've got some of those deals, right? Questions before we uh, turn it over and start our portion discussion? Uh, just real quickly, Glennis? Yes, what's, uh, what's going on? Any change? Well, and no, I moved this week. I'm house sitting in the Athens. And now the next step is to sell my car. I'm going to do this. I'm going to work on that this week. And I'm leaving no later than the 27th. Okay. 27th of July. Uh-huh. Okay. Cool. Good, good, good. So, um, we are praying. And we'll watch God work. And that's the neatest part, is to watch for God to work. Thank you, Jordan. Anything else? Joshua. Okay. So let's just see what the actual time is versus the clock, so that way we kind of keep track of that and not stay up too late here. Um, One, two, three. Yeah. We've got... Um, this week's portion is has arguably the most confusing commandment in all of scripture and I think the fact that it is confusing is perhaps the most important lesson that this parasha can teach us um, I think that the fact that it's confusing is actually what unlocks what, what could be the, one of the most important lessons we learn in our entire lives and when you, when you look at this week's portion it's starting off with a it looks almost out of place like, because in, in the middle of this, we have a narrative going on. If, you, if you've been following the last few weeks, um, it's been a lot of events in Israel's history. We had the sin of the spies. We had the, the, the judgment. They had to march around the wilderness for 40 years. Then we get uh, the, the guy who breaks Shabbat, and they have to kill him for punishment. And then they, God gives them the tzitzit to remind them, don't break my commandments. It's a bad idea. Then we get to the next thing, which is uh, Korach. Korach comes out, and he says, I want to be in charge. A whole bunch of people follow him. He and all his people get swallowed by the earth. Um, then the people freak out, and then you know, and then eventually figure out that Aaron is, of course, the high priest, as we talked about this morning. Um, and so basically, throughout this last few weeks, has been this very intense narrative. A lot of stuff is happening. And then, in the middle of all of that, right before we get into the death of Miriam, all this stuff with the water, Moses hitting the rock. I mean, it's like we got all of these more events, these big events. And in the middle of all of that is this rather odd commandment uh, about the red heifer, about the red cow. And, um, and in fact, according to Judaism, they teach that uh, Solomon is the wisest man of all time. Uh, they, they, had this, they had this fun little midrash where they say that Solomon was so brilliant, so wise, like he could talk to trees. Or what they say is he didn't actually talk to trees. He just understood the importance of trees. Anyway, <laughs> that he also could talk to animals, which they say he didn't really talk to animals. He understood the importance of animals. But basically the point is that he understood everything. He knew the whole, he understood scripture perfectly. He understood everything except for the red heifer. He had no idea what on earth is going on with the red heifer. Because he's like, this is supposed to make people clean, but it makes people unclean who are making them clean. This is totally confusing. And, and the sages say that 
Um, the red heifer, of course, deals with death and clen- cleansing from death, which also and it has it has in it maybe even some some hint, hints at resurrection. We get the idea of there being something after death. There's a reason for why doing this after people die. Um, and in that and in that concept, they say that this reminds us that God is in charge of death and resurrection. If God's in charge of death and resurrection, He can tell us to do whatever it is He wants us to do. And I think that that is the lesson that we need to learn here and throughout this portion because, and throughout our lives, because I think what it really boils down to is life doesn't make sense a lot of the time, like the red heifer. And as we get through the, throughout this uh, narrative that I said this, this commandment interrupts, it's all about stuff that doesn't make sense. But why, did, why was it going to be so hard to get into the land of Israel? Why does God have to punish sin? Why... Did, did Korok get confused and whatever else? And then why the people are grieving? They don't understand what's happening. They hurt. Then Moses, in this, in this portion, he ends up with the death of Miriam. The red heifer is, is surrounded with death. Death is one of those things that doesn't make sense to us. We don't understand why did God have to take that person now? Why do we have to go through this hard time? And, and just like the, the commandment of the red heifer, we don't have answers. God doesn't say why. He doesn't tell you the reason why Last week on Monday was such an awful day. It's because this, you know, you thought you were running late in traffic, but actually I was saving you from, you know, dying in a burning building or, you know, whatever else. It's not that easy. It doesn't make sense. But like the red heifer, our lives have to be like, have to be willing to say, I don't get it. I'm going to obey you anyway. Mm-hmm. And that is the importance of the red heifer. And I think that is what, that is a lesson that we need to learn for everything else in life. Because in the midst of the suffering that comes with death, in the midst of the questions that don't make sense, our answer always has to be, but I will obey God anyway. And I think that that is what stands out here because that's ultimately, I think, part of what's happening to Moses. Um, and I want to encourage you all again. We have a small group, so jump in, make comments, make, ask questions. I wanna, I wanna, uh, I'm not here giving a sermon. But um, in this particular portion, uh, Moses gets into such huge trouble, but I think we need to set up Moses' incident with the rock. Uh, he, right in the very first verse of that chapter moving right along here we are in chapter 20 mm-hmm. and we can go back to the red cow if somebody wants to but, um, chapter 20 you says verse one comment about the red oh absolutely city. go for it something I hadn't noticed before today actually um, was that anyone who is in a field and is slain by a sword who has died I never thought about the whole army having to be cleansed mm-hmm I mean, I thought of individual people, your family dies, you know, whatever's in the house has to be cleansed, or the priest, or somebody that buries them. But it had never hit me till today, and I thought, wow, if you're near someone who gets struck by a sword, that could be a whole lot of people at one point. <laughs> Wasn't after Jericho, they all had to, they all had to stay away? Yeah, I think it, I, well, and I think in the next, um, the next parasha, we talk about, uh, or one of the comes coming up, they have the big battle, and they, they have to clean all the stuff, they have to clean themselves, and they bring up this, the red heifer shows up then because it's one of the only times I think in scripture where it actually talks about the, using them using it because they are cleansing themselves after this battle. Yeah, you're right. They've been, I mean, you can't get much closer to a person struck by the sword if you're the one hitting them with the sword. <laughs> so. But then just to, you know, um, dovetail that with David, the reason why he couldn't be the one mm-hmm. to build the temple, mm-hmm. he said, you are a man of bloody hands. Right. You know, that was, that's, yeah. that's pretty big. That's true. He brought he brought up a point earlier about the third and the seventh day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The third day and the seventh day. Um, 
studying this portion uh, this year opened my eyes to purified on the third day and on the seventh day. Mm-hmm. Where I was, uh, where you know, previously, you know, I was looking at it like, oh, purified on the third day, you shall be clean on the seventh day. But no, you have to purify yourself on the third day and on the seventh day. You can't mm-hmm. purify yourself. Oh well, so I mean, you be purified. purified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, be purified. Which yeah. is the weirdness of this whole deal. Right. Is that the one who's doing the purifying for the guy that needs the purifying becomes yeah. in need of purifying. But if you don't do the third, you don't have the seventh. That's right. Yeah, independent. That's and if you don't do the seventh, you didn't. <laughs> you didn't the third didn't jump. Wow. Yeah. We need a red heifer. <laughs> I think also the mystery of the red heifer. And by the way, all Moses had to do with that was ask R.C. Sproul. He knew it all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, actually, they said that Moses is the Solomon, only one who knew. Actually, I should say Solomon. Solomon mm-hmm. should just say R.C. They, they, they teach that, some, that Moshe did know, but none of us do. Um, it, it appears, and I, I agree with you that this is a great mystery, but it seems to me that, and we're going to get to it, I'm sure, the uh, the bronze serpent yes. is maybe even more, more mysterious. Weird. And, and it seems to me that the, the fact that it's Hukat uh, actually sets the stage to, for us to remember that we do not have to explain these things. And I think that we have a tendency and a desire, and especially when bad things happen to us, to find a way. Well, it kept me from running into a car later on or whatever. And I think that, and I, and I understand where people want to do that, and I don't discourage people from trying to trying to find out if God's trying to speak to them in some way. Right. But, it, but the bottom line is um, that may be true individually. It is not true universally. Uh, we, we cannot know uh, God's detailed plans for our lives, much less for the world. But we have to rely on his him. And I think that's ultimately the lesson that comes in, in the book of Job. If you read through the entire book of Job, there's all of his friends are trying to make sense of all this stuff. You sinned, you messed up. Yeah. And then after that, it's, well, um, everyone sinned, so we're, we're inherently deserving of this. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the traditional Christian answer. Everyone's wicked, so we all deserve bad things to happen to us, so therefore it's okay. Um, and yet, what does Job get? When God interfaces with Job for a couple chapters there, God doesn't explain anything. He just basically says, I'm God. And Job doesn't go, Where were you when I did this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I created this. Can you make this? Can you feed this? Can you do this? And Job doesn't end it by going, Okay, that's nice, God. I got that. No, but why? Why did you do this? We're talking about what's happening to me. Exactly. The boils. This? I'm trying to scrape it off. It's not working. But but he doesn't. He doesn't end it by going, okay, that's great, but why? He he looks at God, and he just like, okay. Okay. Because really, the answer is not why. The answer is who? Mm-hmm. And the reality is that God in this life does a whole lot of things that don't make sense to us. Yeah. And that's actually not a bad thing. That's a very good thing because the only way that we are going to learn to trust God in the big things and in the small things and the things that do make sense and the things that don't make sense is when we believe in God and the things that don't make sense. So this, this red cow, part of it, is trying to teach us that lesson by saying you obey me when it makes no sense. Because in the midst of that, you will hopefully learn to trust me when the circumstances, like the death of someone in your family, doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. 
the, the sages teach that yeah. that doesn't make sense isn't isn't the entire commandment. Really, in reality, the first five, first fifteen chapters mm -hmm. of Leviticus don't make sense. Well, that's true. I mean, how is it that the blood of an animal can somehow have some sort of merit on my behalf, and yet God says that it does? Mm -hmm. uh, that makes no sense. I mean, an animal certainly is a lower form of life, mm -hmm. and yet God is finds its sacrifice acceptable. acceptable. So the part that's un, that's inexplicable has to do with the fact of the, the burning outside the camp and the notion that the one who um, the one who burns it is unclean, but the one who becomes unclean becomes unclean, but the one who moves it is it. It makes them the clean. one who is unclean gets sprinkled. They're made clean, but the one who does the sprinkling, they end up becoming unclean. Mm. It's like it gets. It's, it's kind of like one of those cup games in New York, you know. Where's the uncleanness? <laughs> no, but the guy that moves it, the ashes outside has to be clean, even though it's just made someone else unclean. To move it outside the camp, and it's and it's the outside of the camp. And Rambam says, "Look, the nations mock us over this. Right. The idea that you move it outside the camp that somehow that." It's like this is completely backwards. If it's holy, it should be brought inside the camp. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I've got Micah, and then I have my illustrious father-in-law. Yes, sir. On the red heifer part, it said you were to... This is the decree of the Torah, which Adonai has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and they shall take to you a completely red cow, which is without a blemish. I just thought, where can you find a completely red cow? They, they're pretty rare. They're, That's actually part of the problem right now. We haven't been able to find one for a really long there. time. There's one there. Somewhere. Mm -hmm. But they do happen. Uh, but that, that's the weird thing, is they actually do happen? That's what's even weirder? They do happen. It's just extremely, extremely rare. Yes, sir. I, I think it's incumbent upon our community uh, to make sure that we refer to and reference Messiah Yeshua. Yes, sir. And how this works. It helps us mm -hmm. to understand more about him, his ministry, and so forth. And for those who, of, uh, of us who either forget or, or have need reminder or have never heard of it, um, the fact that the scriptures teach us that Yeshua Messiah took upon himself our iniquity and our sin, mm -hmm. uh, as described in the apostolic writings, is also a description of um, God's helper, as it were, his servant in Isaiah. But clearly, as we look at, as Rick was saying, at the preparation of these, of these waters of purification, the one who is going to kill the cow has to be clean. Right. But the one who drags it out has to be clean, but now becomes unclean. The one who shovels the ashes to take them out has to be clean when he does it, but he becomes unclean by doing it. Uh, you know, the whole thing. So it's almost as if the the uncleanness is moved to the one who was clean, who began the work wow. on someone else's behalf. Wow. Right. And if, as, as, I, as I corrected earlier, we cannot make ourselves clean, no. right? Yes, so one who is unclean must have the priest make him clean. Right. And both parties have an obligation. The one who is unclean must come to the one who is clean 
and he needs to be a priest on the third day, and as Janice said, and also on the seventh day. Mm -hmm. And that priest, in doing his duty, interceding for this person, becomes unclean. Mm -hmm. This is the essence of my Savior, mm -hmm. who, though he was without sin, became sin on my behalf. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the red heifer. That's my Savior. And if we look at the writer of Hebrews, he says in chapter 9 and verse 11, but when Messiah appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then to the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, talking about the, the original that Moshe saw mm -hmm. and then made the copy from, he entered once for all into the holy place not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For with the blood of bulls and uh, goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Mm -hmm. So what we read about, as is normally the case, what, what is this whole temple language for? So that we might draw near physically to mm -hmm. the presence of God. Right. What is this red heifer about? So that we can cleanse our flesh right. from the uncleanness. Mm. And Messiah Yeshua has cleansed my very conscience right. in mm. the same way. Right. Mm. So that I might be able to approach Hashem, the Holy One, blessed is He. This is an eternal, wonderful thing. And is the only time we got anything having to do with the temple outside the camp. Right. Mm. And where was he sacrificed? Outside, outside the camp. Absolutely. This is, this is a great passage for yeah. us, and one that we should be able to articulate effortlessly, as the writer of Hebrews did, to make clear that the temple stuff's not just been done away because Messiah came, but because there's no temple. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. Right. And the correction of that and the physical aspect of it is just the first step in describing the real essence of what our Savior did for us. Yeah. I think it's well, spectacular. And I appreciate, I thank you for bringing that up. Um, I, I think that when we, when we think about this, there's a tendency in, in Christianity to want to say it replaces it. Like somehow the brass of the red heifer were to try and make a, it were a sermon illustration by God. Right. And once we get the real thing, we don't need that anymore. That's not true. It's as you pointed out, it is two different realms you're dealing with. It's like um, uh, if you get if you go to your bank and you get cash to go get it transferred into pounds to go to London, you have money in London. Now that doesn't mean you no longer need dollars when you come back to the U.S. It means that while you're in London, you spend the pounds. So in, the same, in a similar concept here, we're talking about two different currencies, so to speak, spiritual currencies. In your physical world, you need the ashes of the red heifer, the physical ashes of the red heifer. Otherwise, you cannot draw close to God in the physical, Physic. walking into the temple, interacting with God's presence on earth. Right. However, at the same time, your soul, your internal man, needs the same cleansing which can only be given to us by Amen. Yeshua Messiah. Mm -hmm. And it's through his sacrifice and resurrection that enables us to have that that ultimate relationship with Hashem. Without that, then you don't have... Now, the irony is, people, from what it appears, interacted with God in the physical world without really having much of a spiritual relationship with God because God is very kind about it in that respect. And as we have learned, you can have an interaction with God in the spiritual world without having it in the physical. The ideal is both. 
But the more important, as he's pointing out, is that spiritual connection, mm. which is brought to us by Yeshua. Mm. To your point, um, I see you guys. Um, one of the things that he says, uh, it's interesting, you, you quoted that passage that says, he became sin for us. One of the things about the offerings that is very weird in the language in Hebrew is, that the, is, the, is the way that they're named, talking about these offerings. And he who knew no sin became sin. Well, the word for sin in Hebrew is chatat, um, which ironically enough, in this particular case, is also the type of offering that the red heifer is. It is a chatat. It is, it, is it is a sin, like literally translated, which is kind of weird. Um, so in that respect, we actually have in the Hebrew itself a linkage that Paul is pulling out of when he's saying he who knew that no sin became sin for us. He's taking that idea, that, as you point out, that transfer of penalty as, uh, on one, both with the red heifer and with the normal sin offerings, that concept of transferring uh, the, the consequences of sin yeah. Yeah. by using the words because he's not only linking he's not saying Yeshua became sin so to speak in the sense that somehow Yeshua became sinful but in the idea that as a sin offering takes on that penalty mm-hmm. um, or takes on that that um, or as the, with the red heifer you have all this swapping of uncleanness yeah. same idea is applying here um, and the serpent goes back to the same thing again again you've got this very odd I- instance where the people say I need help we're, we're dying here and God's response is, take the thing that's killing you, put it up on a pole, and every time you look at that, then you'll be okay. But it's obviously not the serpent that heals them. A couple thousand, or about a thousand years later, Hezekiah runs into a problem. They've taken the pole and they're bowing down to it because they think the pole is what saves them. That's not it at all. It was never about the pole. It was about what God has done using the pole. And in that respect, God has, God, it's not a, it's not a guy being hung up on a piece of wood that saves us. It is the ultimate one who is Messiah, who is also God in the flesh, that is doing it the way that God chose to do it. And it's our faith in God that that is what atones for us, is ultimately why we are forgiven. Well, I mean, to your point, some of of our brethren in in the visible representation of the church um, would would like to put a theological uh, plate on, on this concept and say that we were totally depraved or dead in our sins to the point where we could do nothing. And they kind of miss the idea that somebody did do something. You could not cleanse yourself without the priest helping you to become clean with the waters of purification. You could not look upon the, the brass or bronze serpent unless it had already been lifted up by the one who lifted it up. You don't have, but you have to look. Yeah. And the faith that it would heal you would, would do it. Yeah, I and think that, that that's an important part of our faith. That yeah. somebody had to do something. Yeah. And it had to be somebody who was not affected by it, that which we are affected by. Right, and it is something that ultimately God does, but at the same time, in a very paradoxical way, we are responsible for acting. Because exactly. even though Moses put up that serpent if you said, well, I am, you know, as a, lowly, as a lowly sinful person, I cannot bring myself to look at it because it, that would be an act of righteousness. So I'm going to sit here and stare at the dirt and hopefully somehow God will turn my head and I will, okay, or, I'm good now. Or if you were, if you had become defiled through, the, through touching of a dead body or being in war, the guy cannot 
cleanse you unless <laughs> you show up. You show up. On the third. You, you know, can't be sitting there going, okay, God, I'm ready. Yeah. Cleanse me. Yeah. Let yeah. go. Let God. You can't right do there. it your way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. The idea being that it takes action. And that's yeah. actually one of the things about, about this. Like I said, it's a bit of a paradox, one of the many confusing things about Scripture, that God does the good deed through us, but from our perspective, we are the ones doing it. And so I think that that's one thing that's important is throughout Scripture, um, action is always essential. It makes mm-hmm. a whole lot of sense to everyone sitting in this room, and it makes sense to children when we use the examples that God gave us mm-hmm. rather than trying to build, as, as Rick has shown, theological constructs that can be taught uh, apart from the Scripture mm-hmm. and apart from the context of Judaism and God's people. And, and, and kind of along those lines, I think we're studying the red heifer, and we talk about the connection to Yeshua, which I believe is an illustration that God is trying to, to create for us. At the same time, I think that we need to also be careful, as, as Dad pointed out a second ago, not to be arrogant and say, well, this is the whole reason for it. That's the only reason why God gave him the red heifer, is he wanted to explain this mystery to us. That's not, I, I think that, I think, Shlo- you know that's not true. Shlomo's a smart guy. I would not be surprised if Shlomo understood Messiah better than we do. But he didn't get the red heifer. So the point that I'm trying to get at is to say that we can we can glean the symbolic lessons that God is teaching us without arrogantly saying, I know it all, because we mm. don't. And just because we've been given a, a great revelation does not mean that we have been given a complete revelation. We are still gleaning. We are still studying. We are still learning. And until the day you die, you said we've done this three or four or five times. By the time you've done it 30, 40, or 50 times, you're still going to be learning something new. Yeah, so I've got you two gents. You first. The, uh, and, and on, that, on that point, the, the red heifer uh, will certainly be explained to us by the Savior. Mm-hmm. And it's insufficient uh, to have been uh, explained away by a theological connection, as good as that theological connection is to Messiah himself. Because when uh, tradition teaches us, when Messiah comes, he will actually offer the tent, the tent, right? Yeah, and and which inaugurates the temple, and and most certainly, then will be scratching our heads even worse be right. set by saying, "Wait a minute, what do we need the red heifer <laughs> if we have you? If you are the ultimate, why would we need the red heifer?" And we see that, just as you described, we have this, we have this experience, this life experience that is both physical and spiritual. And God does not want one over the other. Being so spiritually minded we're of no good in this world or being consumed with the good in this world and not connecting it to God. God wants us to be, he wants heaven brought home. Mm -hmm. And and that's the purpose of the temple is for a place for him to dwell among us. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's amazing that that is Orthodox Judaism's focus right now is to find that red heifer because they know and believe in their hearts that Messiah is the one who's going to need to use it. Right. And to get that temple inaugurated and, and that, I think, he can, find, he can find his own, but we ought to help. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that their, their passion for literally what God said right. rather than a theological construct Correct. about what he might have meant. Right is 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 the focus of their faith, and I hope that as we talk about the symbolism, because I want to bring Yeshua in often, because I think that he is throughout the Torah. But at the same mm-hmm. time, we should never lose sight of the physical, because that would be a shame as well. Then it's like uh, you know, it almost would be something like uh, someone driving 
10, 20 miles over the speed limit telling the police officer, oh, no, 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 I got the point. I'm being very careful. I know that was the point of the speed limit, and I am I'm a very careful driver. And the police officers are handing you a ticket anyway because that doesn't matter. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, earlier, uh, Mr. Spurlock mentioned, you know, how could the death of these animals bring us closer mm -hmm. to Hashem? Um, uh, in Hebrews 10, uh, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Hmm. For then would they have not cease to be offered? Right. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. So, you know, if you're thinking you're raising these animals, this was like your, your life, you know? And you're going to develop some type of, uh, you know, even in, my, in the job that I do, uh, I develop a relationship with other people's animals if I mm. see them on a daily basis. Um, so to realize that the best of your flock, right, the best that, that was born to you is not yours, mm. right? And to the relationship that your children uh, um, uh, built with these animals, the relationship that you built with these animals, uh, and then because of something that you did, now this animal has to lose its life, yeah. mm. right? Um, it should have put an imprint on your conscience that that right yeah. there, right, that, that yeah, that, that could have been you. <laughs> that could have been, should have been you, right? Mm -hmm. Not sure is a nicer word. Yeah. It could have been, <laughs> been you, right? right. But like he said, right, you had to bring that to the temple. Right. You can't sacrifice that in your yard. <laughs> and think that that is right. you have right. to go to the temple with that animal and confess what it was that you've done it's right. not like the priest is sitting there knowing what you did right? right? the instructions were given and then you had to follow with like you said with action you had to bring that to the temple There, you, you're not going to make those sacrifices in your home or at your home and think that that was going to suffice you know and here we have Yeshua and the ultimate uh, 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 and innocent being taking on our uncleanness um, should imprint our consciousness and day by day our walk should be, our way should be, our character should be, hey man, I got to kill this. If you got a thief in you, stone him. If you got it, you know, we're so, many, so many of us, I remember when I first came into Torah, I was I was pointing fingers, pointing, look at this, that's pagan, look at this, that's da-da-da, right? But every time you point one finger out, right, there's three pointing back, right? So what about you? And that is the hardest, that is the most, those are the most difficult habits to break. You might be able to look out into the world and see the world is doing this, the world is doing that, but those things inside of you, that anger, that, you know, all those character traits that are unclean and unrighteous, are you taking care of those things inside of yourself so that your actions and the way that you live, your life, like we read in the, in the prayer service, um, is Hashem being glorified through you? through you? Is your character representing, are you an, an ambassador for Hashem, not to your benefit but to His benefit? Mm -hmm. Can people see you and, and glorify Hashem by seeing you? Yeah. yeah, and I think that as you, um, and again we get back to that whole um, 
the diversity of life where you've got physical and the spiritual mm-hmm. and the spiritual connection with God but at the same time it's kind of like we, we've talked about you know, it goes beyond even just the sin thing like the, the yeah. offerings for physical offerings yeah. for, for spiritual but also your actions because as you're pointing out you've got you've got those physical actions that you're doing and you also have the spiritual ones mm-hmm. but you know the, the, the sad thing is you've got the, you've got people who, who who are so tied up in their spiritual relationship with God that they forget about the people around them Mm-hmm. And it's like First John says, you can't say I love God and not love the people near you. It's like mm. if you can't love the person you can see, how can you possibly say you love God whom you have not seen? <laughs> yeah. And uh, that that idea kind of ties in here too. It's not just about the offerings; it's also yeah. the lifestyle. It's about yeah. the actions, and it's got to be both physical and spiritual. If I don't have, have a relationship with Hashem, if I'm not praying and studying His Word and whatnot, then my relationship with the people around me is going to be hurt by that. At the same time, if I am putting my my prayer time or whatever else above the needs of the people around me, that's a problem too. Or even worse, if I'm interacting with God on a spiritual level, prayers, worship, reading scripture, whatever, but I'm treating the people around me poorly during my time at work or at home with family, whatever, people that I don't even like, then that that is um, the ultimate blasphemy, really. And I think that that's something that... Um, We'll touch on it just a tiny bit as we move into chapter 20 now. Mm-hmm. Um, chapter 20, verse 1, uh, I think sets the, st- the stage, sets the scene for what we're experiencing here. Verse 1 says, The children of Israel, the whole assembly, arrived at the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people settled in Kadesh. Miriam died there, and she was buried there. You know, we get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words. Eight words. Think about this. One of you we were watching the, the video from Rabbi David Foreman um, last night, and he has a lot of really interesting points on this particular passage. And he highlights the fact that Miriam dies and nothing happens. Like to, for the people. Moses dies, they mourn for thirty days. Aaron dies, they mourn for thirty days. This first, she gets eight words. We almost you almost don't even notice. You're like, and they moved to this city and they came to this part and they settled there. And oh by the way, Miriam died, and then the people were complaining, and we did like, whoa, 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 stop, stop. stop. Miriam died? What? Like, you missed that. And I think, um, you know, that I think that, that plays something of a role here. Miriam's death is a traumatic experience, uh, I believe. Um, Rabbi David Foreman thinks similarly. Um, with uh, for, for Aaron and Moses, but especially for Moses, I think it's a really big impact. Miriam's a big deal in Moses' life. Miriam's the one who helped figure out uh, how, to, how to rescue him from the Egyptians. She's the one who goes to the, the Pharaoh's daughter and says, Hey, I got a great Jewish woman who'd be happy to nurse that child. And so Miriam and Moses have had some sort of a relationship since longer than he can remember. Um, and now she's dead. And then we get the, the water disappears. And, uh, and that's itself its own little weird thing. For those of you who are not familiar with the tradition, um, tradition holds that throughout the wilderness... Are you going to go into this point? Okay. I don't want to step on your feet. Here, um, throughout, the, throughout the wilderness, God, uh, when God first tells Moses, strike this rock, water's going to come out, they teach the water, follow them all over the place. Rabbi David Foreman notes that this is an odd place to have a, a water crisis. This is 40 years later. For the last 40 years, where have they been getting water? Now all of a sudden they don't have any water? They've been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. Where's the water been? They say, and if you actually, Paul uh, confirms this point in 1 Corinthians, that the water followed them and went with them. Um, Paul equates it to Messiah, and Messiah's um, the rock that followed them, uh, either in Messiah's merit or perhaps literally Messiah. We don't even, it's, you know, God's, God's mysterious like that. Um, but Judaism also says that, um, in, in Judaism, the idea of a righteous person 
um, benefiting the people around them simply because they're righteous. I think there's a lot of scriptural merit to that. They talk about um, Aaron is saved because Moses intercedes for him. People of Israel are saved because Moses intercedes for them. Why does that matter? Because Moses is righteous. Moses' righteous deeds um, make him a friend to God. God's willing to do favors for his friends. So God, God, you want to save these people? You and I are tight. Anything for you, Moses. So that's kind of what's going on here. Miriam is righteous. Miriam's a righteous woman. She's a prophetess. We've had that experience at the, uh, the splitting of the Sea of Reeds. She uh, connects with Hashem in a deep way. So the Judaism tradition teaches that the water that followed them is called Miriam's well. It was in the merit of Miriam. The reason why they had water is because Miriam was there. And they use this passage as proof text for that because, oddly enough, as soon as Miriam dies, the water is gone. Mm. So they're saying it's it's got to be linked to Miriam. And somehow. the Hebrew supports them with, with the bond. Right. Below, right? Below Hayah Mayim. So Miriam dies, and and there was no water. Is literally how it, how it reads. So... Um, I was I was just going to say that uh, it was Robert Gordon's video that we watched that brought to my attention the fact that um, well I mean I'd already heard the stuff about Miriam dying and then the water disappearing there being a connection there but it helped uh, I don't I don't know if he's right but I I liked how he tied it together with um, the way that Moses reacts um, how I mean you know he says he gets he gets very angry and he speaks. He speaks angrily to the Israelites, which is kind of out of character. We don't see him do that in any other place. And then he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. And it's like it's almost like uh, I've always thought it looks like he's not even thinking. Like, well, well, we ask, what were you thinking? Why didn't you just do it? You know, and and we wonder why that happened. But I'd like to Rabbi Foreman's take on it because um, I have a brother, and and we are we are close. Um, our birthdays are two days apart. We celebrate them together sometimes, or rather we did. Um, but with all the stuff that's gone on recently, we are not that close. And there's more and more space between us. But I remember when we were close, and it's like, I, I can understand being like really emotionally affected. We have been through grieving, um, very very personal things. And it's it's very, um, you're very emotional. You're not really thinking. And, and everything that um, somebody says or does, you tend to read into it or um, you get angry or you ra- react to it. You think, you know, how could they say that to me or how could they do that? Um, because when we're emotional and we're grieving, we're not, we're not thinking very clearly and we, um, we do things that are out of character. And I, I like, so I liked what Rabbi Horn said about that because I, that helps me understand what might have been going through Moses' mind that he was acting emotionally because he was grieving, um, because he and his sister were really close. And I, I, I can get behind that, I can understand that. Mm-hmm. Because I, I have a brother, and yeah. we're close. Yeah. And with, with one of the things Rabbi Foreman says to that point, that that was really cool, is he notes that when Miriam's well first emerges is when Moses hit the rock. That time, God says, hit this rock. Moses hits the rock, water comes out. And, of course, the teaching then says that the water continued to flow in the, in the merit of Miriam. So Rabbi Foreman's point is maybe, maybe Moses at some level is trying to recapture that experience. You know, the last time I hit the rock... It, it continued to flow because of Miriam. And we know we've lost Miriam physically, but somehow I can reconnect with her by hitting the rock again. And not to say that um, that was the only reason he did it, or even that he's even conscious per se, but it's almost like I think that when we lose someone, there's that desire to want to try to 
to take it back, to go back somehow, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to pretend like they didn't, we didn't really lose them, to somehow act like everything's still normal, because we we don't understand. That's what I, at the start of this discussion, the way I went to the red heifer, we don't understand. It doesn't make sense. We're grieving, we're hurting, and we're confused, and we want something that makes sense. And sometimes the only thing that makes sense is the past. The only thing that makes sense is to do what we did yesterday, which sometimes is not what we're supposed to do now, and. And that's what happens, I think, to some degrees, what's happening here. I think Moses, I think you're right. I think Moses is, he's not thinking so clearly because he's hurting. And worse, as we just pointed out, and Rabbi Foreman points out, no one else is hurting with him. That's the saddest kind of grief, is when you're grieving alone. Um, and that's, and it's very painful. And so he, he's experienced things. Think about like when, when Aaron's sons die. Aaron's, Aaron's overwhelmed with grief. Mm-hmm. But but Moses says, well, hold on, wait, you can't you can't grieve right now. It's too it's a big deal. You have to you have to hold on, but we'll grieve for you. Moses isn't getting that here. The people aren't coming to Moses and saying we'll grieve for you. He's carrying that burden alone, and now he's now the people who don't grieve for him are complaining to him. And it's a lot to handle. So there's definitely. I, I, I liked another connection is Rabbi Foreman points out that he says, listen now, O rebels. Shall we bring forth water from you from his rock? Which again is just not how Moses talks. He just doesn't ever say anything that forceful. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least not to the Israelites. And um, but Rabbi Foreman points out that the word for rebels is the same is Miriam. Um, it's the exact same letters. It just has different vowel markings. And almost like he's almost like he's talking to her. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. His, his, his connection there with with the word was astonishing. Yeah. He says, you know, if, if you write Miriam and take the vowel markings off, you can only get three different words out of it other than Miriam. Right. The first one is bitter, which is the first water thing, was bitter. Right. He says it. It's got Miriam's name again, and he had to throw the stick in there to make the bitter water sweet. The second one was... Uh, raising up. Raising up, raise up right? Which is and what he does with the staff, staff when he, he hits the... the he, it's yeah. then Moses raises his arm. He, he raises his arm... To, to hit, the, hit the rock. Hit the rock. So you get and the that's word. Miriam. That's also Miriam. Yeah. And then the last one, the rebels, is Miriam. I mean, it's just the, the connection yeah. with Miriam. There are three water crises, and the word for Miriam is used in all three. He used the word rebels, because they're not really rebelling. They're just... Mm-hmm. They're just not trusting God. Right. That's not quite the same thing. That's right. And um, and we've been here before, and they've done similar things before. You know, asked, where's the water? We want water. And it's like, this time he calls them rebels. And it's just, again, kind of this out-of-place word. Why is he calling them rebels? They're not really rebelling. And, uh, but it, it's her name. Yeah. I think that was, that was really cool. I really enjoyed that, that concept. The Midrash also has their own little take on that word. Um, they have a, a, one of the guys, I can't remember which rabbi, unfortunately, right now. But he mentions that there's one... one coastal community or whatever in Israel would use the word for rebels, Maureen, um, and, and uh, it actually was used as a derogatory term, like almost like, you fools, you know, that kind of concept. So when I read that, it immediately reminded me of Yeshua's words, uh, yeah. because on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, whoever kills someone will be uh, brought before the, the council, or yeah. be judged. But I say to you that if you simply think... Think, 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 uh, hate in your heart towards someone, then you'll be, you'll be worthy of judgment. He says, and if you say with your mouth "raka," which is like an insult in Hebrew, then uh, or Aramaic, I guess, then that would be worthy of bringing brought for the council. If you say to them, "You fool," you'll be, you'll be in danger of Gehenna. So the idea being that those words we speak, 
And I think that that, that sometimes, um, you know, hopefully wow. in August, we're going to be delving really deeply into the Sermon on the Mount um, starting in early August. And this, I think we miss that. When we read that portion, we're so focused on don't hate in your heart, don't hate in your heart. Somehow we think that Yeshua just has to deal with like emotional angst. But actually, what Yeshua's primary physical expression of that is, is verbal. How many times have you been, you know, some guy cuts you off in traffic, idiot, can't believe he did that, you know, whatever it might be. When we're, that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah. yeah, we gotta think about that. The words we use, the things that we say, not just the way that we feel or the things that we think about, but the actual words that come out of our mouth. You know, and God forbid that we would insult someone to their face. Yeah. Like that, that's it. When you embarrass somebody, this, the sages teach that that is, that is yeah. equivalent to murder, yeah. to killing someone yeah. with, 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 um, by, by making them ashamed in public. So that, that concept is really serious. So what Moshe does here, part of, part of the, the, the intensity of the punishment, I think, is because he crosses some, some dangerous lines with the way that he treats the people of Israel, even though they, they deserved it. I mean, that's the thing. I don't think that we're looking at it going, man, he just blew up at them so unexpectedly. It's like these guys were driving him crazy. Yeah. I mean, like, we understand why he blows up at them, and yet at the same time, he's not justified in them. And I think that's, that speaks volumes to us, because we oftentimes justify ourselves. But there is no justification. Yeah. You know, Yeshua is the ultimate example, and he yeah. died for us in the midst of us mocking him, spitting at him. You, know, you, yeah, were, yeah. you were listening to that earlier. Yeah. And, uh, and yet in the midst of that, he's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then what Yeshua says, like, um, you know, when in the, in the instance of Natila uh, Yadayim, he says, it's not what goes into your mouth that's going to make you unclean. He's not talking about unkosher food, right? He, say, he says... He says, but what comes out of your mouth, mm -hmm. right? Because that's showing what's, what's on the inside. That's giving people a glimpse into your heart, mm -hmm. right? So that kind of shows us uh, if we still say words like that, and I do, man, sometimes, yeah. you know? I hear you. And it's, uh, you know, you realize how much more work that is needed. <laughs> you know, you realize how humble you are. Like, man, you know what? I thought I knew something, but... <laughs> you know, I still, you know, this dude cut me off, or my wife did that, or I did that, and I said this, and I did that. Mm. What is, you know, you realize how much help you need, and that you can't do this by by yourself. Right. You can't do this by yourself. Right. You you can't do this on your own power. There are some things that you can do. You can you can stop stealing. You can stop, but you know that heart. You know you got to cleanse your heart, mm -hmm. and you know that is the work of the spirit. Mm. That is the word. Mm -hmm. You know, and that is realizing that ultimately Hashem is in control, and we're, we're not in control. That's true. At the same time, I think it also the, the Judaism teaches that you change the inside by changing the outside. Yeah. So I do think that, that as we're, you're right, God's the one who changes the heart, yeah. and at the same time, we almost invite Him to do that oh, yeah. by working on those outward actions. So yeah. we, so that's why I mentioned that the tongue is such a good example because. If you've ever, if you've ever dealt with any kind of bitterness or anger on the inside, that's really hard to fix. Yeah. We have a lot more control over what we say, yeah. but at the same time, we certainly don't act like it sometimes. Yeah. So we got to really work on on the, that physical action, yeah. and then hope that, and then ask God to be changing the inner man yeah. so that the outside and the inside match up. Yeah. Um, I think Micah, did you raise your hand? Did you ask me to say? Mm. If not, it's okay. We'll move on. If it comes back to you, let me know. No. Did you make your comment? Or did you have one? Uh, he made my comment. It was cool. I was just going to bring us into the king thing. 
the cane thing? The dome and sure. To hold that thought for a second. Are you ready to move on to that? Or are you going to? Uh, no, actually, I was going to talk a little bit about Moses' punishment. Okay, we'll go. Th- we'll go there first, and we'll come to you next. Yeah. On, on his punishment, as we discussed earlier, the, the uh, um, Yeshua makes the point that sometimes the reward that someone receives in this world is denied them in the world to come, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And, that, and he specifically in the Beatitudes where he talks about um, suffering and hardship in this world because their reward is in the world to come. And I think that one of the things that it's easy for us to, I think it's very easy because I love Moses. You know, Moses is is the man you know, to me. I mean, he's such a great example of, of what I think we all should be. Um, so it's it's so difficult sometimes to think about how um, how much he went through and what he carried, and then to be denied even the, even you know a day in the land with his people. And and I'm reminded of Yeshua's words in that regard. In that um, what was reserved for him was Matthew 17, and the presence of Messiah and Eliyahu on a mountain in the land, and to reserve that and preserve that reward, and you know, in the world to come as well, he had to not receive it in, in this life. I mean, it was almost like. You know, and and you know, we, we have no no knowledge that Moses ever understood this, but he certainly does now. And you know, it's almost like you have a choice: would you rather walk in now, you want to look dirty door and dusty, one, or what she's got in the dirty box. and dusty, and there's you know, there's a million and a half people behind you yakking and making noise, or do you want to experience it on the mountain with the Messiah, with the Messiah of Israel? You know, and and. You know, and tradition teaches us that when he stood and he looked into the land, he saw it in the world. Uh, and so we understand that he certainly had a he had that he had at least a glimpse of what it could and would be. Um, and so I don't think we should I don't think that we should be um, uh, um, bitter for him, even though he is he is certainly someone we would elevate and, and have great regard for. We should not, uh, and not that we would ever question God, but we shouldn't even hesitate in a moment that Moses if Moses had had an opportunity to make the choice, he would have made this choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they actually the Midrash teaches that um, God off- basically doesn't offer him the choice, but he expresses the choice so to speak by saying, this world you can either do it now or you can leave all the dead Israelites who are leaving behind the wilderness in the world to come then. And so we see that Moses does have a reward for the- yet to come. Moses, Moses's death um, the, the argument, I was telling some of the guys at lunch, the argument is basically the concept that all the, the sages di- are, uh, disagree on what happens to the wilderness generation, the one that died in the wilderness. But one Midrash teaches that they do get up a place in the world to come, but they only merit to have that place because Moses, Moses is denied a right to go into the, world, into, the, into the land. That if Moses had gone into the land and um, had not died in the wilderness... Then it would have they 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 would have had no one worthy of the world to come who died in the wilderness. But because Moses dies in the wilderness, and we right. know he has a place in the world Amen. to come, he be he is like the, um, the the logical explanation as to why they could have a right to go to the world to come too. Because obviously, dying in the wilderness is not the kiss of death, so to speak. It's not the the last straw. That's it. You have no hope. 
Moses died in the wilderness. Therefore, they also have the opportunity to go to the world to come as well. So the idea is that Moses sort of takes their place, so to speak, by joining them in death in the wilderness. He, they end up having the, the merit to enter into the world to come on behalf of him. They also have another midrash about the, um, the punishment, because the, the sages go, this is odd. This is not the first time Moses has lacked faith. Moses, for all of his brilliance, has a couple of weak points, very few. Man's amazing. But one of the few is earlier when, um, or actually it's about the same, um, it's in the, anyway, this is the passage about the food. Basically, the, the people are complaining, they want food, and God says, You feed them. You, you know, he says, I'm going to feed them all. And Moses goes, how are you going to do that? Like, if you, if you took all of the fish out of the ocean, there wouldn't be enough food for these people. And, and that, the sages go, that's a worse uh, lack of faith than here. I mean, here Moses doesn't really believe God, so to speak, kind of, but he, he doesn't really even express that. There it's like blatant. It's like, I don't even know how you're going to do that. You know? and the, but so they, they equate it to the story of a king with his friend. And the king and the friend are, you know, they, they have time alone together. And the, and the friend says something very foolish and kind of insulting to the king in private. The king, you know, he's my friend. I forgive him. We can move on. But then the friend says something insulting about the king in public. And the king says, take him out let him be executed. He, it was in public. I can't do anything about that. You shamed me in front of my people. That's a conse- the consequences have to be severe because i got to prove that that is not allowed. I can deal with it. It's not because I'm bitter. It's because you have hurt my uh, for the perception of me in front of the people. And that's what God tells Moses in this passage. He says, you did not sanctify me by believing in me in front of the people. The Ju- Judaism teaches that one of the worst sins you can do is desecration of the name. Desecration of the name is not taking God's name in vain in the sense that you use it as a swear word. It's the idea that when you, you, who are supposed to be godly, Act in a way that's not, and people see that. People look at you and they say, if God's like that, I want no part of that. That is, ironically enough and sadly enough, the worst curse, so to speak, the worst worst stamp of religious people today. What what do you hear over and over again? Oh, they're hypocrites. I don't want any part of that. I I was open to maybe the God thing, but then that, that Christian guy was so mean to me, or... You know, whatever it might be, or you know, he says he doesn't do X, but I saw him do that. So he mm. says one thing, he won't let me do it, but then he can do it. You know, whatever the case may mm. be. So when we live our lives like that, if we're if we're supposed to be kind and gracious and loving and good, and we and we get angry at someone, or we we uh, we we say something we shouldn't say, maybe we are, uh, maybe we break one of the, we break a rule, we act we act unethically because it's convenient, or whatever it might be, we end up desecrating God's name in public and it's a huge deal extremely massive because now we've not only damaged our reputation we've damaged God's reputation because we are representative of him mm-hmm. just as Moses was a representation of God yes sir when Moses was told that God was going to feed the people um, the lack of faith there to me is understandable it just didn't logically make a whole lot of sense that it could be done <laughs> Moses knew he couldn't. Um, but in this case, he's, he was given clear direction to do this, and he did not. And I'm real good at following Moses' footsteps <laughs> in that way. God rarely asks me to believe stuff without a whole other reason. We get these kukim, you know, later on as, you know, these, these weird out-of-the-box you know, take the head of the 
bird and wring it under the water with it in any weird stuff. I, I don't need to do that right now anyway, but I would do it because, yeah. you know, hey, but where I'm specifically told, forgive your brother when he does something against you. Make sure that you sanctify my name. Don't say this. Don't do this. Mm -hmm. You know, that doesn't take a whole lot of faith in my mind. It takes obedience. Okay. And I demonstrate what I really believe by my lack of obedience. Right, that's true. And that's the, I think that's the point we have here, is that Moses' action demonstrates a lack of faith. Exactly. Because he doesn't believe at some level that, I guess at some level it's, it, it's coming off as though he doesn't believe that God is, is really in charge. That somehow I can do what worked last time and that's, that's going to be okay, or that God will punish me because he's not... I mean, whatever they may be. I, I don't think he thought about that at all, just like you and I don't think about right. it. Right. We just choose to do what we want to do, and we just choose not to be obedient. The, the, um, the sages talked about the importance of having God sort of before you at all times, mm. and the, the idea that like if you have real fear of heaven, if you really understood, if you really knew who God is, you would never do anything wrong. Right. I mean, the closest I think I've ever gotten to that is sitting in this room, and Shavuot, we're going through the, the morning prayers on the day of Shavuot, and the prayers for Shavuot are like mind-numbing. I mean, you're going through them. First off, they take like five hours. But then on top of that, it's basically page after page after page of man is pathetic and worthless and garbage, and God is immensely awesome and incredible. And how dare you even think that you have the right to even talk about God because... Now let's repeat that again, five Yeah, and basically by the time you're done with it, you're just like... I will never do anything wrong ever again. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I haven't been wiped off the face of the earth yet. And I think if I were to even think something bad, it's over. You know, it's like, but we should have that awe uh, ongoing because, as you pointed out, I think that is the faith that we're missing somehow. We don't. Something's a disconnect between who God is and who we are when we don't act like He wants us to. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you. Yes, mom. I think find it interesting that it says. He says to Moses and Aaron, because you do not believe me to hallow me, you, you will not go on the land. But then at the end of 13, in my translation, it says, they contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Right. So we have this dichotomy of, you didn't do what I asked you, but I went ahead and brought the water anyway because of the need of the people, and you didn't hallow me, but I was still glorified in the end. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting mm -hmm. how the... because. You, would, you wouldn't expect it to say, you would almost expect it to say he wasn't hallowed among them mm -hmm. because of the actions of Moses and Aaron. And yet God still provided a way, even though they sinned, to bring about his own glory mm -hmm. and for his people to see him as he should have been seen. And so I think when we make mistakes and we blow up in front of our children, I mean, you talk about something that God will show you what's inside of you, have children. <laughs> and, and, you know, you're tired and you... Dad's been gone for three days and whatever else, but is this personal? Yeah, it's personal. Um, <laughs> Mom, by the way, story about somebody. Or Mom, was so, <laughs> Mom was so sensitive. Anytime she right. did anything she thought was a problem, she came to us later. I'm so sorry about this. You this know, is been all right. We don't get it, Mom. Whatever. Uh, it's just you know sometimes you see the side of yourself that you don't think is in there. But I did apologize to my children, and I do still apologize to my son. Um, but God is good, and he will bring about his glory, regardless of, of where we are. And sometimes he has to bring about that glory through punishment, because he yeah. judged Moses. I think be, uh, the two passages that come to mind on that one are the sons of, of, uh, of Aaron, because the same thing happens there. They disobey God, they get 
literally obliterated. Yeah. Okay? And God says, I will be sanctified. I, was, I am sanctified by those who come near to me. In other words, their death sanctified God. Why? Because it showed that God's, God means what he says. It showed the people God is serious. So in the same, the same thing here later on, um, we look at the story of Mordecai and Esther, and Esther's going, I, I can't go before the king. It's not going to work. Mordecai goes, look, it doesn't matter if you do it or somebody else does it. God's going to do what he wants to do. But by the way, if you don't, if you don't happen to help out, God's going to wipe you out. So the idea being that God's going to be glorified. The question is, will he be glorified because you did the right thing, or is he going to be glorified because he has to punish you for doing the wrong thing? Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, it's intense. It's good stuff. We've actually getting we're moving along here, getting towards the end. So we want to go to the king of Edom, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about these kings, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, I just two things came to mind this year as I was reading. The first was these guys are morons. What's up <laughs> with that? I mean, you, I, I get it's forty years later. I get it. Crossing the sea, manna, quail, you know, the whole deal. But, man, it's, why would you say no? And then another group says no. Okay. The third one, though, maybe they were thinking, okay. It worked for them. (laughs) The dome said no, and they went around. We should just say no. But Sikon did not just say no. They came out and fought. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because there's a, the verse there that I think is very interesting. It says that, um, oh, was it that one? There is a passage here that mentions the um, the wilderness. It may have been actually, is it just there? Anyway, there's one, there is a, there's a point here in this discussion where it talks about them traveling. And it mentions like coming on the way of um, where they sent out the spies. And yeah. I kind of get the impression that some of these guys were like, ah, ah, see, they didn't work last time. Yeah, that's right. They got in trouble. God wiped them out. Got, atta- got you know, them loose to the, the, the Amalekites in the, in the mountain and whatever else. Going to be okay. And um, you're right, because they, they're watching and they see. By the way, even though they don't fight Edom, God lets them have it for this one. Yeah. In fact, out of all of the groups that you're not allowed to be friendly with basically Edom and Moab are um, I think it's was it Moab right? are specifically listed because of their failure to take care of their brethren the Midrash teaches that um, when they come to Edom they say they had this odd discussion we've been in Egypt for a long time you know why do they even really bring that up and the point that they're trying to get at is Abraham was told your descendants will go down and serve another people who's Edom Edom is from Esau who's a descendant of Abraham so the people of Israel are saying, look, you also should have gone to Egypt and been slaves for a long time because you were also part of the descendants of Abraham. But instead it was taken upon by us. So since you lived the good life for the last you know, couple hundred years, how do you just let us come through? You know, a favor for all time's sake, basically. And Edom says no. And Edom's lack of hospitality here, God says, I want you nothing to do with them. People like that are too dangerous. You've got that kind of a spirit in you. We need to stay away. Because those people are scary. So God basically, I mean, the, the idea is not that they can't convert. Tradition holds that Obadiah, who's the, the prophet on the wall here, the prophet who speaks about Edom, is himself the Edomite convert. So the idea is not that they can't come to know God, but that as a people group, they're bad news, in a sense. Because the, the, it's not so much because of, of anything to do with race, racial stuff or anything like that. It's all about 
the, the character mm-hmm. of because if you look around the world today, I mean, we people get uncomfortable with this to some degree, but um, different nations do have character traits. There are things about different countries that just seem to be prevalently true about that particular group of people. Nothing to do with race; has to do with their environment, has to do with their culture. And what what God is saying is that the Edomite culture is bad, mm-hmm. and um, at least in this area. And that's why uh, they get they get in trouble there. I think these kings are talked about in our prayers. We we mentioned yeah, these guys. Sihon and Og. Yeah, Sihon definitely comes through, and uh, he goes out to the wilderness to go do battle with them. And um, oh no no, I know what it was. It wasn't that. It was the it was the Amalek king that are the the can, uh, the Arad king. He says he dwelt in the south. Heard that Israel had come by the route of the spies. Yeah, that's when he steals some of their people, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and the people of Israel go and fight them. As I mentioned at the beginning of this passage, these chapters are tough. These are bad ones for Israel. That's probably one reason why Sihon is feeling so confident, or Arad is feeling so confident. The last couple of, you know, four decades have been rough on the people of Israel. And the last few chapters have been rough. Miriam's died, the water's dried up, Moses has gotten in trouble, Korach. I mean, the whole deal has been bad news. The whole generation has died. So the, the, these bad guys are looking at it going, beat them while they're down. This is the time. Obviously... God's pulling away from them. Bad things are happening to them. We feel this too. I mean, I think if, if you've ever if you've ever experienced um, temptation to do things that you might never have considered, it's oftentimes when things are not so good. You get that weak spot, that weak moment. You're grieving, or you're you're tired, or you're 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 um, you've been worn out or frustrated. Bad things have been happening, and the Yetzirah comes in and thinks, "I'll fix that for you. I'll make you feel a little bit better. How about you just do?" X. Or, you know what, you deserve to take a break. You, just just let go. Let let go and just enjoy life for a little bit. You know, whatever it might be. And it's in those moments we've got to be strong. We've got to be tough. Um, as we wrap up here, I think that um, I love the end of this chapter. Because I... This, oh, Before you move, wrap up the serpent. Oh, right. Absolutely. Um, as we discussed, it's mysterious. It has... It's like, you know, on the one hand it becomes idolatrous. Eventually, you know, in the, in the days of uh, the divided kingdom, you know, it becomes idolatrous and, and it had to be destroyed. Actually, it was destroyed the same way that all the all the all of the the the, uh, the poles and other things from false gods. This is something God commanded Moses to make, and he was he didn't tell him destroy it after it's done. But this this goes back to the same notion. Uh, Yeshua draws from this and and makes the parallel to himself mm-hmm. as. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he makes the very distinction that, you know, it's not a it's not a wishy-washy thing either. You look, you trust, you live, you don't look, you don't trust, you die. Just cut and dry. Um, and and the 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 interesting thing to me in all of this is the idea that we we can take images or symbols um, and draw something from them other than the person of God we, we accuse others of making idols what we don't realize is oftentimes we make idols of the very things the good things that God gives us mm-hmm. and we and we, we we use them to replace the God the person of God himself mm-hmm. and this is a, a, a perfect example is is Messiah himself we have no right to declare that we were only going to worship God the way that Jewish people worship Him. As a statement. 
We have no right to say that. We have to say we will worship God in the way that God has told us to worship him. Um, we can draw distinctions or whatever else and find things that we're most comfortable with. We are not at liberty to worship him in the way that we find best. Hmm. Because that is idolatry. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, I don't think it's so we, that. May not, we may not like the fact that Messiah was raised up on a cross. We may not like that. We may not like the fact that he was put in a grave and he says, if you don't look on me, that's it. And resurrected. We may not like that, but we don't have a choice. <laughs> right. It's not up to us. Right, that's true. It's not if you don't, you die. And and if we choose to say, no, no, look, there's all these good Jews and they're all okay, so I'll be like them, we're 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 presuming upon the mercy of the Almighty in the same way that people refuse to look at the at at the uh, serpent on the pole, or later worship it instead of God. Well, I think one thing we, we run into here is the, um, God has a lot of grace for ignorance a lot of the time, but when you have learned truth and you walk away from He's not real good with disobedience. That's scary, because even if maybe you decide, well, I don't believe that anymore. The point is, um, when you walk away from what God has shown you, it's a very dangerous place to be. Um, and that's something that I think is coming on here with, with Moses and with the people. God said, do this. If you don't do this, you know better. Now you're in trouble. Big trouble. Yes, sir. Um, last point on the serpents, uh, the fiery serpents. Uh, verse 6, 21-6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Um you know, sometimes in the prayers uh, we get to that part where we're, we're we're kind of seeing the throne room of heaven, and we're we're, we're praying about the description of uh, the uh, the angels that are worshiping him, and two sets mm-hmm. different kinds of angels then turn to right, the exactly. seraphim, same one, this fiery ones. It's the same word, and that's that's where we get that from. Yeah, not the kind of folks you want to play poker with. These are. Fiery kind of folk. And interesting because the word seraph there is a, a play on words too. Nakash and the because uh, Nakash is copper, copper, and it's misspelled. It's also serpent. Right. So they're kind of related. Yeah. The funny thing is, seraph shows up twice in an odd place in this parasha. It starts at the beginning with the um, the red heifer, because the burning of the red heifer is seraph. It is the burning. It's a fire, you know, kind of concept. So it's funny how they, they show up in almost bookending of this of this parasha, but in ways you don't expect. We have the red cow, and then we have the snake, and yet those two yeah, are connected. Exactly right. In Messiah, interesting, very, very interesting. Um, as we get towards the very end here, I do want to wrap up. I know we're getting we're running a little bit late. Um, I, what I love about the end of this passage is, after all this bad stuff, it's been a rough stretch, as I've been pointing out. Um, they get this battle at Sihon. God gives them victory. You know, this is a big deal. Like they've been, this, this is they're actually starting to take. Some of the land. When they beat the people of Arad, they told God, well, wipe it out. It'll be like basically an offering to you. So God gives them victory and they wipe it out. This is like the first time, if I, if I understand this correctly, it's the first time that they're actually taking territory. They're actually starting to lay claim to the promises of God at this point, to some degree. It's not the land that God is wanting them to take now, but ultimately it is part of the land of Israel. So at some level, it's a, um, it is a, uh, it is the fulfillment of all of these 40 years of working. But it starts bad. At the beginning, the, the people, the Sihons goes, no, 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 you can't come through my land either. What are you going to do about it? Huh? 
And so it's like it starts off negatively. And I'm sure the people of Israel, it's like, oh, man, again? But God says, no, no, this time, go ahead. And bad news for Sikon. Well, then it gets bad again. Oh, now we learn later, oh, he's a big dude. You're like when you read the passage, um, you don't, it doesn't get it in this passage, but later you find out the guy had a bed frame made out of yeah. like iron. And it was like nine, nine feet, feet long. Yeah. The guy's huge. And moves like a cat. <laughs> 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 so the giant guy, and, and God actually has to tell Moses, don't worry about this one. In other words, there's a reason to worry about this one. Like, this is, a, this is an army that we've already, I mean, Sihon had beaten the people of Ammon. That's what we talk about the, with the Haftarah. You know, they, the reason why they take the territory and the, Amorite, the Ammonites come later and say, hey, that was ours. It's because the other guys are taken from them. So these are these are warrior people. These are strong. This is a powerful enemy. Then Og shows up, and he got this giant nine foot guy with his army behind him. Also another powerful enemy. But what does God say? The God says, just like you got those guys, you're going to get these guys. I'm going to give you the victory, and I'm using these lessons. And I think that's one of the things as we go through this parsha, we go through life, is those those hard experiences, those tragedies, those things that make us hurt, those times when we had faith and we didn't feel like it. Those were building blocks to the next things that God can look back and say, you know what, last time, last summer, when you went through X and I got you through, get you through this one too. Mm-hmm. So I think that that, I, I feel like there's a lot of encouragement at the end of this chapter, even though it's been a tough one. We've gotten to the end here. We're seeing, we're finally, we're seeing victory. God is giving them victory and he's doing it in miraculous ways. And God later is going to use these examples with Joshua when they get ready to go to the land of Israel and say, remember how I, I took out Sihon and Og? Do the same thing for you. Um, final comment. Did you have a comment, sir? No, I'm good. Quick, just a quick question. You mentioned Obadiah on the wall. Can you do a very short overview of the walls for those oh, who might not know? Absolutely. Um, I got the I got the master sitting in the corner here, so let's see if I can do it. So basically, um, my father. Same with Abraham. Yeah, my father-in-law um, went through a. Who was the name of the book that you started with? Do you remember? Anyway, it was uh, David. David Solomon. Solomon's. Uh, review of uh, Jewish history in 500 year chunks. So basically, the concept is to use the walls as a physical picture of history. So if we were to start in this corner and say that's Adam at the very, very beginning, then that whole block is a thousand years, and you get to Noah in that corner. Then you go another thousand years, and you get to Abraham in this corner. Then about halfway through, we've got the Exodus. This is 500 years in. And then that corner is David. So the part, our parsha right now is right about here, and then of course you got the judges, Saul, David is in that corner. And the haftar is in judges. Right, the haftar was in judges. Then coming over on this wall, this is about the midpoint, and a little bit before that, you've got the Babylonian exile. A little before that is the Assyrian exile, and then you've got the kings and all of that. So the prophets are all basically in this in this chunk, a little bit after Babylon's exile and, and over. So the prophets are all right in here, and Obadiah is in, in the midst of this half of the wall, basically. Esther, so, Nehemiah, Ezra, right. all right there. Right, yeah. So then we get over here, up, up, wherever, ironically enough, where Judah is sitting, you got Judah Maccabee, <laughs> and, the, uh, and the, well, the story of Hanukkah. And then in the corner there is Yeshua. So we're talking 2,000 years ago now. Um, first Adam, second Adam. Right, first Adam, second Adam, same corner. Then you've got the destruction of the temple, you've got the Talmud, all of that history, 
that in that half the wall over going into that way, you've got the, the birth of Islam, you've got um, all, all the Gayanim, a lot of the other Jewish sages. And in that corner, we've got Rashi, who makes a lot of the commentary. Then through the first 500 years, you've got the bubonic plague, you've got the Crusades, you've got a lot of that history, as well as a lot of um, other important sages like Rambam and Ramban and all of them in that half. Um, right around the middle of, the, of that wall is the Shulchan Aruch. And then the final, you get all the way through the rest of history, you've got the Enlightenment, you've got the creation of the United States of America, you've got um, all the way through up through the Hasidic, Hasidic Judaism is, is, emerges there. And then you got the creation, recreation of the State of Israel. And in the very, very corner is us. You are the righteous person in that corner. So the idea that was created here is that you have a righteous man or woman in every single corner of the of the of the room, and you, it helps you delineate where you are in history. Well done, Brock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was actually the, one of the very first things we learned in Zadi class when it first got started, and I think it's probably what got us all hooked and thought, "Whoa, this is so cool." You know, we just took the history around the room, and I'll never forget it now. Um, anyway, so uh, as we go through um, as we go through this portion, we look through the history of Israel. As they're right over here, um, these events are real. These events are real to them. We don't we don't feel it so much now because it was a long time ago. Um, but at the same time, they're going through. This is a real life experience, and it has that application to our lives as well. That like them. There's a really weird reference here. You got all these, uh, there's this little song they sing, and then it goes into like where they're traveling. And it has this odd thing where it says, um, from the, the gift to the valley, the valley to the heights. And the Hebrew actually shows up in the Perkei Avot. In the Perkei Avot, they, they have this odd reference. They pull out these like three words, basically, and they go from the gift to the valley to the heights. And you're going... And they, they don't even explain it. It's like they do that. Like, what? And then if you look at the commentary, they're saying the gift is the Torah. It takes you from the valley to the heights. But this parasha is also about that story. It's about taking what the lessons that God teaches us and using them to get through those valleys, those hard times, so that we can ascend with God and, and make sense and ultimately glorify Him in our life, which is our purpose. So, all righty. If you would like to lead us in prayer, unless we have any final comments, we're good? Okay. Being a Latino, our father, our king, we are grateful for community, for the opportunity to come together to study your word and to sharpen each other. As you take a break for the month of July, we pray that uh, you find us faithful to continue to pray, both independently as well as together, that we would uh, practice hospitality and we would... Uh, be seen in the world as those who have joined ourselves to you, that are obedient and connected in your midst to you. Father, we thank you for preserving your word for us, for sending Messiah Yeshua to save us and to uh, soon come uh, at your word. We pray for his soon return, and in the meantime, that you would find us faithful in all God's people's sin. Thank you, folks. We'll see you uh, the second Shabbat in August.